In graduate school, Rachel Martin volunteered with a Southern uh, oral history project. One day, she was sent to a small town in Tennessee, in the foothills of the Appalachians, where locals wanted to build a museum to commemorate the events of September 1956, when Clinton High School became the first school in the former Confederacy to undergo court-mandated desegregation, thanks to Brown v. Board. But not everyone in this town wanted to talk. As one founder of the Tennessee White Youth told her, Honey, there was a lot of ugliness down at that school that year. Best we just move on and forget it. And yet for years, Martin wondered what it, uh, it, what it was uh, for some white residents of Clinton uh, who didn't want that period in history to be remembered. So she went back, eventually interviewing over 60 townsfolk, including nearly a dozen of the first students to desegregate Clinton High School and pieced together what happened back in 1956. The death threats and the beatings, the picket lines and the cross burnings, neighbors turning on neighbors and preachers for the first time at a loss for words. What comes out of all of that research, all of those interviews, is the book A Most Tolerant Little Town, The Explosive Beginning of School Desegregation. Uh, That Rachel Martin is now Dr. Rachel Louise Martin. And I'm pleased to have her on this program. Dr. Martin, how are you today? I am fantastic. How are you doing? If I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I am doing well. I'm delighted to have you <laughs> on, and I'm glad we have an hour uh, to uh, to unpack what is what is in this book. Um, I just shared, as you heard with the audience, uh, a bit of the backstory for how this book came to be. Let me start at the beginning, and we will jump from there. Tell me about being in graduate school volunteering for this Southern Oral History Project and making your way uh, down to this part of America where you learned uh, a great deal more about September 1956 uh, and what happens in this country right after Brown v. Board when schools are ordered, court-ordered, to desegregate. Tell me about that that first trip. Yeah, that first trip I thought was going to be a three-day experience. It's now 18 years later, so it mm. lasted quite a bit longer than that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I was working with this oral history program, just going out and doing interviews in different tiny communities around the Mid-South. I would go in, I'd talk to five or six or ten people, and then I'd send the interviews back so that they could use them to open a museum, to do a national register district, whatever it was that the town was attempting to do. And so I thought this was going to be just another place that I came in, I got my work done, I helped them do good things, and I moved on with my life. And instead, I became absolutely enthralled by the story I was hearing, by the people I was meeting, and just by how different the story I was hearing was from what I had always been taught, and also how different the story was from according to which eyewitness I was speaking to. Mm -hmm. The differences among memory was really what drew me in initially. Mm -hmm. And I assume that difference in memory, uh, in part, had to do with whether they were black or white? It did, yes, very much so. Um, Several of the white people I interviewed on that first trip, folks who were considered themselves law and order, so none of the white people had stood up and said, segregation must go down, it's wrong. The closest anybody ever got to that 
among the white community was saying, we will obey the law. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I had several of the white participants tell me this was about good whites versus bad whites. The black people had nothing to do with it. Mm. And, of course, this entire situation, <laughs> desegregation yeah. was there because yeah. the local black community had said our children deserve better. Our children deserve a good education. They deserve an opportunity to get good jobs, to work at the nearby federal plant in Oak Ridge, to become scientists and lawyers and doctors. And so that fundamental difference right there. Um, But even within the white community, there were people who were being silenced or lectured or had something a little more radical to say. And they, they were also getting the same pressure that I saw being put on the black community and yeah, that was that was really where all this inquiry began. Yeah. Um, her book is an intimate portrait of a small town living through tumultuous times. It's a, a book about, as I said a moment ago, the first school to attempt court-ordered desegregation in the wake of Brown v. Board. Uh, and I think and hope that this conversation might uh, challenge you to rethink, uh, to reexamine your assumptions, to expand your inventory of ideas about the end of racial segregation in America, specifically as it relates to our schools. The timing of this conversation couldn't be more propitious given um, what we're up against right now with affirmative action in higher education uh, being uh, ended uh, and all the other drama that we're enduring with banning books, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Good time for a conversation, uh, a reflection on what it was like in America at the end of Brown v. Board Uh, when uh, uh, the court mandated desegregation in this country. We'll get more into the book, uh, and the author uh, will uh, stay with us for the hour to unpack all this when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. Unapologetically progressive. Progressive. Unapologetically blind. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. 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 MC Light for AARP Hip Hop. The cultural phenomenon that took New York by storm in 1973 is celebrating 50 years of rocking mics and crowds. Whether you're a ride or die hip hop head or simply curious about its origins, check out the latest issue of AARP the magazine. It celebrates this incredible milestone with a featured story brimming with fun hip hop facts and history. Head over to aarp.org slash black community to learn more. Community is more than where you live. It's the people in it who go above and beyond to help it thrive. During the 50th anniversary of hip hop and the 75th anniversary of black radio, AARP recognizes the members, volunteers, people, and partners giving back to our communities. We believe when our efforts drive change for the greater good, we all thrive together. To learn more about how AARP supports efforts to keep our communities thriving, visit aarp.org slash black community. Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now. I'm Tavis Smiley. Glad to have you tuned in. Our guest in this hour is Dr. Rachel Louise Martin. She's author of the new book, A Most Tolerant Little Town. Uh, about the explosive beginning of school desegregation in this country uh, following the Brown v. Board decision, um, and so I, I, I think, uh, uh, Rachel, I want to I want to come to um, um, to Clinton High School uh, and specifically asking you to sort of set the stage for us 
and describe what this high school was like. We'll get to you know what happens when they have to desegregate it. Uh, again, we're talking about Clinton High School, the first school in the former Confederacy to undergo uh, court mandated seg- desegregation. That is, but tell me tell me about Clinton High School for starters, and we'll go we'll go from there. By 1956, Clinton High School was a surprising little place. It was on the edge of Appalachia, right on the foothills of the mountains in the middle of the coal mining district. And so it was serving a lot of kids whose parents were working in the mines or working in the local textile mill. It was also, though, seven miles away from Oak Ridge, which was one of the three secret cities in the Manhattan Project. Mm-hmm. I imagine a lot of your listeners have heard about the new movie Oppenheimer. It's, mm-hmm. it's all part of that same system. And so they were very aware in the county of the fact that they needed to have a fantastic school system for their white children so that the white kids wouldn't have to go work in the mines. They could go work at Oak Ridge or they they could work other similar places and take advantage of all the opportunities that the Manhattan Project had opened up for them. And so by 1956, Clinton High School has one of the, it's one of the top rated schools in the state. It is cited across the South as being one of the best places to send kids for school. They have a conference-winning football team, their basketball team does well, they do plays, and, you know, they're just, they're just noted mm-hmm. for their academics and also their extracurriculars. Mm. So what happens um, when they uh, are then subject, uh, courtesy of this Brown v. Board decision, uh, to desegregate? Um, you've, I wanted to start with that question to, about the school uh, to give the audience a sense of what we're talking about here. So this particular school, with all that you've just laid out, uh, all, the, all they got going on, now they're being told they have to desegregate, and they receive that message how? They learned that in January of 56, so just the semester prior. Um, they had been in the federal court system for the previous six years. There had been a lawsuit in 1950 about desegregation, but it had been put on hold pending Brown versus Board. Mm-hmm. And then when Brown II is handed down, the federal judge in the case reactivates it and says, all deliberate speed, which is the timeline given to desegregation, mm-hmm. all deliberate speed in the case of Clinton High School means they will desegregate in August as soon as the next school semester starts. Mm-hmm. Um, the principal, who repeatedly says, I do not believe in desegregation, but he said, I will make sure that every student in my school receives an equal education. He told the black students they would not participate in any extracurriculars. They would not be in the drama club. They could not go out for football. They couldn't do any of those other things. Mm. But they would get the best education from him and his teachers that they could. And they were given the same matriculation tests everyone else was given. Several of them were put into the college preparatory track. So he, in his very limited way, did his, did his best. Um, but the rest of the town quickly divided. There was already a group in in the town called the Tennessee Federation for Constitutional Government that began taking up signatures and threatened to pull all funding from 
Clinton High School state funding because segregation was written into the state constitution. So they went to the courts and said, if the state has mandated segregation, then the state cannot support this school. They began getting folks riled up in that way. Um, And the first day of school went relatively peacefully. Mm -hmm. There were a few protesters out there. I think most people in town thought it would never happen. But by the end of the day, there were there was a massive white segregationist rally in the square, and things went downhill fast after that. Mm. Um, you mentioned earlier that you were told by some persons who were around then, who you interviewed for your book, that this is really a fight. This was a, a tête-à-tête of the good whites in this town versus the bad whites in this town. Tell me more about that before we get to uh, everything just, you know, going into a rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, the the law and order crowd really saw themselves, especially in retrospect, as the heroes of this story. Mm-hmm. And they, many of them quickly said, well, we might not have agreed with desegregation, but we still stood up for it as as best we could, which I would argue was not entirely true. I mean, there are Klan rallies riding through the black neighborhood and the white police never show up to stop them or to protect the fa- the black families. So mm-hmm. <laughs> as best they could was not very good um, from the perspective of the black folks in Clinton. But a lot of them would say, you know, we kept the school open. If you look at Little Rock or you look at Prince Edward County in Virginia or you look at other spots, they shut down the schools. We never closed our schools. Mm-hmm. Um, we kept showing up, we kept doing what we were supposed to do in the face of friends, neighbors, family members who were violently opposing us. And folks did, you know, there were crosses burned in the front yards of white people. There were several, a, a white minister is actually beaten up at one point in the story. They did face some real threats of violence along the way, um, but they, in their minds, in some cases, completely erased the amplified threats and violence that the black students, their parents, and their neighborhoods faced. Yeah. Um, it, it, we're not going to lose sight, obviously, in this conversation of the, of the violence that black folk were subjected to in this particular moment. But I, but I, but I am curious uh, to learn just a bit more um, about the ways in which um this violence shows up in a white versus white frame because that's not something we we tend yeah. to think about when we think about desegregation when we think about you know central high school in little rock or clinton high school the subject of your book or any number of other places i i can see ruby bridges walking into that school in new orleans the Norman, the famous Norman Rockwell painting. So all across the country, um, Americans are being forced to deal with desegregation of schools again because of the uh, Brown v. Board uh, decision in Brown two. Uh, and yet, again, when we have these conversations, we don't think of white people turning violent against other white people because some of them tried to do the best they could to use your phrase, and others were just not having it. Uh, so I'm wondering if you can tell me just a bit more about the ways this white community turned on itself. Yeah, white people are absolutely willing to use violence to police other white people in 
I won't say in the same ways that they do people of other colors, but the violence is still used. So um, the P- pastor Paul Turner at one point in November, he's the pastor of the largest white Baptist church in town. Mm-hmm. He walks the students through the middle of the white mob and into the school to ensure that they get into school safely at a time of heightened heightened violence in the streets. Um, and when he leaves the school, he was surrounded by somewhere between a dozen and 15 white people chased through town, trapped against the side of a car, and then beaten up. Mm. Um, several of the white teachers would come out to find their cars vandalized, um, which I can say from personal experience, having faced some threats because of the work I do, white supremacists love to target people's cars. Mm-hmm. It's a really effective way of communicating not only that they intend violence, but that they can find you wherever you are. Mm-hmm. So they know where your house is. They know where your work is. They can track you down. And so they love to target cars. Uh, it makes you feel vulnerable and like you just don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, they burned, they burned lots of crosses. Several of them were burned in the front yards of teachers at the school, white women who had been pro- taking a stand for the black students or trying to protect them and to use their whiteness and their femininity to give particularly their black female students some level of protection. Mm-hmm. Um, several of those limited women were targeted. Lots of businesses were targeted um, and there was definitely a loss of income for the families of the white female teachers if they ran the local department store or grocery store whatever they they saw a dip in um, income that year because of the stands that the women took so it, it took several different forms and then the white students within the school who had attempted to be friendly toward the black students. And at Mm. first there were several who really Mm. attempted to, who saw similarities and who said, hey, you seem like somebody who I might get along with. Um, And very possibly they'd known each other. It's a small town. Mm. They'd known each other all their lives, you know. Uh, Several of them were were pushed or were threatened or it was very clear that they would face serious reprisals. in the case of the students, most of them, as a result, then dropped those friendships, the mm. interracial friendships, very early on. The students yeah. did not stay the course, no. but some of the adults did. Nope, I, I, I'm not surprised by that. Um, so that's that's the white folk. Um, and if mm-hmm. it's if, if it's that bad for the white people, I'm I'm, I'm afraid to ask this next question. <laughs> but this is where this story is taking us. If you got white folk turning yeah. on turning on each other that way because they can't stand the thought of these Negroes coming into their school system, how were they treating maltreating the black folk in town, the black students and their families? It was a year of absolute terrorism. Mm. It began the first week of school. There were massive riots in the street. And in this story, every time I say riots, I mean white people. Mm-hmm. This is never. <laughs> <laughs> These are race riots. And every single time I mean there are white people rioting. Um, they were turning over cars. They were marching through the black neighborhood or driving through the black neighborhood with weapons drawn. 
um, they then the National Guard is sent in. Mm-hmm. Unlike Arkansas, Tennessee's governor sends in the National Guard to enforce the court order. Mm-hmm. And the general of the National Guard is the only law enforcement officer in the entire story to try to protect the black neighborhood. So he also sends his his troopers into, it's called the hill, up onto the hill um, to patrol things. And so that shut down street violence in Clinton itself mm-hmm. for a little while, and it moved into the schools. And you mentioned the Tennessee white youth earlier. There was a group of girls in the school who chartered an official state club called the Tennessee white youth. And that organization and its members moved the violence and the intimidation into the school. One kid was threatened with an ice pick. Several of the black students told stories of people pretending to making little mini nooses and pretending to hang their fingers um, and threatening lynchings that way. Um, And one of the black girls was almost pushed out of a second story window Mm. onto in, into the auditorium. It would have really broken her. Um, And the boys were just constantly being attacked, punched, hit, beaten by the white kids. Um, And as I suspect many of your listeners know, white girls and white women were part of this violence in the same ways that the white men and boys were. Mm. Um, this, it's, it was rather an equal experience for them. Um, and so eventually then in the second semester, bombings really pick up. And throughout the spring, the hill is, it, it just explodes, literally. Mm. There is bomb after bomb after bomb. We are talking about uh, Clinton High School uh, in, um, in Tennessee, a uh, small town in the foothills of uh, uh, the Appalachians where um, they did not want to honor or respect um, the Supreme Court decision uh, to desegregate schools in this country. And uh, there are lessons to draw from what we're learning uh, from Dr. Rachel Louise Martin, our guest in this hour, lessons to learn from this story uh, that are applicable, I think, even today are certainly worth reflecting on. Her book is called A Most Tolerant Little Town, The Explosive Beginning of School Desegregation. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful book. It's, it's a rare book that really goes into a particular town and tells you exactly what it was like in this country. Uh, in that moment uh, when the good white folk were wrestling with this Supreme Court decision and being uh, forced uh, by this court-mandated order to desegregate schools. Think about that as we continue this conversation and think about where we are today in 2023. I digress for the moment. We'll continue with Dr. Rachel Louise Martin when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. This is getting good. Tabby Smiley Smiley. continues when we come forward. forward. Smart talk for curious people just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. You're listening to Dr. Rachel Louise Martin on Tavis Smiley. Her book is called A Most Tolerant Little Town, The Explosive Beginning of School Desegregation. We are at that point. Uh, on the calendar where kids are returning to school, so a good time for a book like this to come out and and remind us of what America was like after Brown v. Board when 
um, the Supreme Court uh, mandated desegregation in schools across uh, across this country. You consider where we were in 1956 when this happened and where we are in 2023. We'll get to that perhaps later in this conversation. But uh, there are some things that are happening every day that we discuss on this program and beyond uh, that are eerie. Uh, sort of reminds you of um, what happened in 1956 and whether or not we might ever return to an America that looks anything like that. Uh, and I don't say that uh, lightly, uh, but a lot of these things that we are experiencing in real time are scary from the banning of books to this whole fight about um, uh, critical race theory, which is nonsense in schools. But uh, that debate, uh, affirmative action uh, being wiped out now in education, higher education. So there, there are all sorts of uh, ruminations, all sorts of rumblings, if you will, in our culture right now that sort of remind us of, uh, or should remind us at least, of what America was like in 1956 when, uh, again, schools were ordered to desegregate in no, no time like the present with uh, kids returning to school to, to think and to look back on what America was and what she could be again if we are not careful. Again, our guest is Dr. Rachel Louise Martin. Her book is called A Most Tolerant Little Town, The Explosive Beginning of School Desegregation. Um, we've been talking, uh, uh, Dr. Martin, about, Clinton High School in Tennessee, which is clearly uh, in the former Confederacy. This school, Clinton High School, as I said earlier, is the first school in the former Confederacy to undergo court-mandated desegregation. I am not naive in asking this question, but it seems to me from your text that so much of this has to do, uh, so much of this, by this I mean the pushback, the fight back, the white folk turning against each other, all the violence being visited upon black students and their families at the time, a lot of this has to do with the fact that this is a school in the former Confederacy, yes or no? To a degree. Okay. Um, that racism is a national problem. It sure. is a national sin. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, Clinton is facing extreme violence in this moment because of desegregation. And over the coming several years, we would watch other school systems go through a very similar period of time there are same you know little rock birmingham new mm -hmm. orleans they all rise up but then you look at what happens in boston mm -hmm. um or you look at the ways residential segregation had been built into cities like new york or chicago and that is one of the things that made a rural southern town like clinton a unique situation. Mm -hmm. It was such a small place that they did not have communities that were divided far apart. In fact, there were a handful of white families that lived in the black neighborhood, and there were a couple of black families living in what were considered white neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Residential segregation in the South in this era was not as strict as it was in communities elsewhere around the nation. And so a lot of other places could say, oh, we don't have a segregation problem in mm -hmm. our school systems. Kids just go to whatever their neighborhood school is. But because of banking laws and real estate laws and other such things, that meant kids were effectively segregated. And today, that is what most school segregation looks like. It is, it is a byproduct of residential segregation the South has began mimicking 
the ways that the rest of the nation had divided themselves so that now you can say, oh, well, a kid who is zoned to the school goes to the school they're zoned for. And nevertheless, that means schools across America are more segregated today than they were in 1968. What do you, what do you make? that? That's a powerful, powerful and damning indictment of our school system. Um, since you went there, let me follow you, and then we'll get back to back to 1956 in a moment. What do you make? I did of jump the, forward, didn't I? You did jump forward. I I ain't mad at you. I, I was going there, so I'm I'm following you. It's your conversation. I'm just moderating it. Uh, so what 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 do you make? How do you read those parallels from 1956 or the 1960s, as you mentioned, to where we are in 2023? That this stuff is still it's 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 done under a different umbrella, if you will. But this stuff, uh, this stuff being segregation of our school systems and the way we live and work and show up in this country is still as real as rain. Oh, yes, it is. Even within, so I was raised within a consolidated school system in a rural part of Tennessee Mm -hmm. where, which today those are the closest to desegregated systems that we have on a wide scale because then every kid in a county has to go to the same handful of elementary schools and Mm -hmm. high schools. Um, But looking back on it, even our classrooms, they might not have been able to segregate our schools, but our classrooms were segregated. Mm -hmm. By the fifth grade, all all of the black children had been taken out of my class and were tracked into what they were told was the slower class in the school. And so in terms of desegregation and in, we've, we have as a society, and I think specifically as our white leadership has figured out how to get around the laws that they were given. Um, and, and they did so very quickly and very effectively um, to segregate neighborhoods and communities further apart. The, fun, the fact is most of our school systems are funded through property taxes. Mm-hmm. This means that wealthier, whiter districts bring in more property taxes for their public schools, and therefore they have significantly better public schools. Mm-hmm. And local governments can say, but we're, everybody gets to live with whatever they're able to bring in, or if they're told they have to equalize spending according to each student in a county earn gets exactly the same amount of money, well, then boosters are allowed to bring in additional money for a school or PTAs fundraise. Or we have, we have so many sneaky ways of making sure that wealthier, whiter kids are given more opportunity than anyone else is. Yeah. Um, you, are, you are tracking... Um a speech I gave literally last Friday in Houston. Uh, Yeah, I was here Thursday for the show. Friday, uh, I was in Houston giving a speech. And part of what I talked about um, in advance of this conversation with you today uh, was the way we go about fixing education in this country. And there are a number of ways to do that, even though we continue to resist the pull to do so. And what I, what I suggested in Houston on Friday is that we need in this country a constitutional amendment that guarantees every child in this country equal access to a high-quality education. Um, for all the talk about the Second Amendment and other things that we'd like to you know, address and fix in our Constitution, um, nobody has this conversation about how we fix the education issue. 
And again, what I suggested was that if we had a constitutional amendment that guaranteed every child in this country equal access to a high quality education, that would go a long way to addressing the issue that Dr. Martin just laid out. When we come forward, I'll tell you more about my thought about that and why I suggested that at this conference in Houston on Friday. And then we'll get uh, straight away back into this book because i got a few other things I want to ask Dr. Martin about regarding her book, A Most Tolerant Little Town, The Explosive Beginning of School Desegregation. You are listening to Tavis Smiley. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. You heard uh, our guest, Dr. Rachel Louise Martin, say moments ago that we have sneaky ways in this country uh, of ensuring that uh, that white folk and certainly wealthy white folk uh, have access to the best education this country can afford. No question about that as we have this conversation, um, given that we are returning to school. Uh, many kids return to school all across the country. We've been talking about 1956 when Clinton High School became the first school in the former Confederacy to undergo court-mandated segregation and all the hell that broke loose um, in this town uh, in Tennessee when they were forced to do so. I was saying that in a speech in Houston last Friday, I, I suggested that what we need is a constitutional amendment that guarantees every child in this country equal access to a high-quality education. Now, we can't prejudge outcomes. Nobody's trying to. The problem is we got 50 different states in this country, 50 different ways of doing it, as you heard Dr. Martin essentially say moments ago. Everybody does a different way. Uh, and because education is uh, connected to tax base, if you live in Washington State where there are many major corporations that are headquartered, you got a higher tax base. You get a better you get a better education in, in, in Washington state. If you live, say in Mississippi, where their greatest export is catfish, you have a lesser tax base. You ain't going to get as good an education in Mississippi as you will get in Washington, 50 states, 50 different ways of doing it. So I suggested, uh, that we need a, a, an amendment that guarantees every child in this country access to an equal high quality education, but something is wrong when after, uh, all these years, uh, since 1956, uh, and uh, court-mandated desegregation, we are still finding, as she put it, our guest, uh, Dr. Martin, sneaky ways to ensure that some folk get access to good education and others do not. Let me put a pin in that for the moment. Um, and I want to pivot to uh, something else that I've been wanting to ask uh, Dr. Martin in this conversation, and that is um, how you process, uh, Dr. Martin, the fact that when you first went to this town, uh, you were told that a lot of ugliness happened at that school, and it's best that we just move on and forget it. I thought about my grandmother, Big Mama, who I asked, asked her one day to, uh, something about our own family history. And my Big Mama said to me, baby, we're going to leave that lay where the good Lord done flung it. We're going to leave it lay where the good Lord done flung it. She didn't want to go there. Uh, but in this instance, you encountered the same thing. They just didn't want to talk about it. Uh, what do you make of the fact that uh, this history that we need to know is so is so relevant uh, and so rich, and yet there are people who were a part of it that just want to leave it where it was. Don't want to talk about it. Yeah, I encountered a lot of that, and that is one case in which I think the reasons for why some of the black students and their families did not want to talk were very different from why white people in the town did not want to talk. Mm -hmm. For the for the black students who had gone through that or for their siblings or their parents, they had, a, they had a lot of trauma. Sure. You know, they, at this point will start listing off 
symptoms of PTSD. Mm-hmm. And of course they did. They were 14, 15, 16 years old. And they spent somewhere between my, nine months and multiple years of their lives yeah. fearing for their life. Mm-hmm. And that changed them. And they were very aware of that. And so for them, silence was a way of protecting the next generation. They didn't want their kids to inherit that anger or that damage. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also, a, they they had to live in a world in which they interacted with white people. Mm. And it was a way of not exploding at the next white person who said boo to them. Um, you know, many of the men went on to serve in the United States Army, which was an integrated force at that point. They mm-hmm. were living in barracks alongside mm. white guys who looked just like the ones who had attacked them. Yeah. And so it was, a, it was a very strategic survival tactic. So I, so I, so for, I, I, I'm sorry, not, not to cut you off. So I get a, strate- a strategic survival tactic. I get why then the black folk didn't want to talk about it. When we come forward, in our remaining moments, I want to hear the other part, and you know what I want, right? <laughs> why did the white folk not want to talk about it? I can guess the answer to that question, but why guess when Dr. Rachel Louise Martin can tell you exactly when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Ranked number 45 on the heavy 100 list of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in America. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. Got about four minutes left in conversation with Dr. Rachel Louise Martin, author of the book, A Most Tolerant Little Town, The Explosive Beginning of School Desegregation. Um, you, was t- you were saying to us, Dr. Martin, uh, why the black folk were a little skittish about talking to you, uh, given that they'd been traumatized by what happened in 1956 when Clinton High School became the first school in the former Confederacy to undergo court-mandated desegregation. Now tell me why the white folk didn't want to talk to you initially. Well, some of them never did. Yeah. Um, I I would like to think that in at least a few cases, they were they regretted what they had done, mm-hmm. or they were embarrassed, or they at least knew that they should not admit it publicly anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did have a couple of people where I would know because of research. Oh, this is you know you were sent to jail for this action, and they would start telling me what their brother did or what their cousin did, and I think oh that was you. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm asking for a friend, right? I'm asking for a friend. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Exactly. It was very much that tactic. Yeah. Um, but there were other people who just, I knew, were continuing on in the white supremacist activities. They had not changed their minds. They just knew better than to talk about it publicly with me at this point in time. Mm. Um, it was something that needed to happen behind the scenes, much as, you know, the the Ku Klux Klan was always supposed to be private because if if other folks know, they can prosecute you for it. And so it was a way of being able to continue. That's why I love the, no, that's why I love the TRC. Uh, One of our guests earlier today, I think in our last hour referenced the truth and truth and reconciliation commission in South Africa. Uh, And the way they went, the way they went about doing things after apartheid, I still think is the, uh, the, the, the penultimate example for how, um, one comes to terms with an ugly past, with an ugly history. Uh, I digress on that. Um, here's my exit question. Uh, what for you uh, in the 90 seconds I have left? Give me one or two of the takeaways 
uh, at least takeaways that you hope we will get from this book about what happened in 1956 with court-mandated desegregation and where we are in America today? I think the most important lesson is that change is not the responsibility of our politicians or our leaders. It's not the responsibility of our stars. It is about ordinary people Mm. getting up and doing what they need to do in their own little corner of the world. Those 12 black students changed history by going to school. And if we each get up and do what we need to do in our own little corner of the world, we can begin to affect change in our nation in a real systemic, long-lasting way. Mm. And that would be my first, my first takeaway. And the second is that we need to stop thinking of these actors in the past as being, not, not to stop thinking of them as being heroes or as being aspirational, but I think very often we cast these people as being superhuman. Mm-hmm. And instead, these were teenagers. Yeah. They yes. were worried about boyfriends and girlfriends. They were mad at their younger siblings. Yes. They were mad at their parents. You know, they were, they were kids. Everyday people. And everyday people. And when we cast them up as these bronze statues yeah. and make, make memorials of them, yeah. that's important to do, but it also excuses us. I take your from point. finishing their work. No, powerful point, powerful point, and I, um, I take it, I receive it. Her name is Dr. Rachel Louise Martin. The book is called A Most Tolerant Little Town, The Explosive Beginning of School Desegregation. Dr. Martin, uh, enjoyed this conversation immensely, learned a lot from it. I thank you for the book and for your time. All the best to you. Thank you. I have had a wonderful time talking with you. I, I appreciate that. I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you very much.